0: Homes.com. We've done your homework.
1: Hello and welcome to Happier, a podcast where we talk about ways to build happier habits into our everyday lives. This week, we'll talk about the first thing you should do if you are feeling burned out. And we'll talk to writer Katherine Schultz about her terrific new memoir, Lost and Found. I'm Gretchen Rubin, a writer who studies happiness, good habits, and human nature. I am in my little home office here in New York City, and joining me today from LA is my sister, Elizabeth Kraft, my sister, the innovator, which you know if you listen to the most recent episode of More Happier.
0: That's me, Elizabeth Kraft, a TV writer and producer living in LA, and Gretchen, I complain often of burnout, so... This is a good Try This at Home for me.
1: We're going to get into it. Yes. But before we do, we have a lot of updates this week. First, in episode 367, we talked about a happiness hack from a listener who talked about now you can get scratch-off stickers. So you can make anything you want into a scratch-off, which seemed like... So rich with possibility, but we couldn't really think of anything. And Mary sent us a suggestion.
0: She says, I think parents with elementary age children could use the scratch off stickers as a fun way to reward their kids for setting a personal goal. For example, if your children struggle with remembering to do their chores each day, the goal could be one week of completing all your chores without needing any reminders. At the end of the week, they choose one sticker to scratch off that reveals their reward. Extra screen time, dinner of your choice tonight, ice cream for breakfast, etc. I wish I had known about these stickers when my kids were young.
1: Yeah, it just elevates it. It just makes everything feel so much so more exciting. Fun. Yes. And then in the category of minor holiday alert and the calendar of catalysts, we've got a bunch of days coming up that people might want to use as a catalyst. March 20th is the first day of spring. So that's a good time for growth, spring cleaning, renewal, things like that. I have to mention, one of the things we talked about is identifying your personal anniversaries. I have Mm. a personal anniversary coming up, which is March 21st, 2016, which is six years ago, was the first episode of My Little Happier, Mm. which is the little weekly episode I do by myself with my two to four minute little story. So that's an exciting
0: anniversary for me. Love those. And then Danette had a great idea for halfway day. She said, connect with a family or friend who lives out of town or state or wow, even country and arrange to meet halfway. You could (laughs) spend the day, meet for coffee, whatever is warranted for the distance and circumstance. I think I'm going to try this and rotate each year. So I have an excursion with someone to a new place each halfway day. Love it. This
1: is so fun. And then also coming up is April Fool's Day. And oh. every year we put out a call. Can you think of easy, gentle, fun pranks? It's fun to do April Fool's Day, nothing too mean and nothing that takes too much setup. But if you have any fun little ideas, April Fool's Day is a really fun, whimsical holiday to surprise your family and friends with. So if you've got any great ideas for April Fool's Day, send those along and we will pass along any great ideas we get.
0: Gretchen, we also have our next very special episode coming up.
1: Yes. We're going to do rest because it's rest 22 and 22. So we're going to get everybody charged up to rest. Hmm. So if you have hacks, insights, observation, resources, what do you do to help you rest? How do you rest? Because we're realizing people have many different ways that they are resting. We want to take the time to get focused on rest and really think about ways that we can rest more deeply more imaginatively, you know, and more easily
0: and more consistently.
1: Yes. And more consistently and kind of tied to the idea of rest um, because it's like the (laughs) opposite of rest. Our try this at home tip this week is if you are feeling burned out, the first thing that you should do, the very first step is to identify the problem.
0: Yeah. Now, I think this is so interesting because I feel like we all just think burnout is itself a thing. And it yes. didn't even occur to me until you brought this up that like I could identify something within a burnout and make it better.
1: Here's the challenge. If you say, okay, I'm burned out, it feels like you've identified the problem, which is right. burnout. But actually, there are so many reasons a person might be feeling burned out. And saying that you're burned out doesn't suggest any solutions. It doesn't suggest anything constructive. So, Instead of saying you're burned out, if you identify the problem, you might be like, I'm feeling burned out because I have a lot of conflict with my boss. I'm feeling really burned out because I'm on Zoom for eight hours straight and I don't even have time to like get up and eat lunch. I feel burned out because my company is downsized and now I'm doing the work of two and a half people instead of one person. I'm feeling burned out because I don't have the tools that I need. I'm feeling burned out because my child isn't sleeping well through the night and so I'm really underslept. Those could all be making you feel burned out. But they point in just really different directions in yes. terms of how would you address that burnout?
0: Yes. That's what I like, that this means, oh, we could actually solve that problem. And, you know, Gretchen, I was thinking about myself and what is the problem when I'm burned out? Yeah. And sometimes it's just the marathon sort of nature of my job. And yes. maybe that doesn't even qualify as burnout. That's just exhaustion. <laughs> I, I think there's something to that. It's not, know.
1: Yeah, you're not burned out. You're just like there's just so much so depleted.
0: Fast. Yes. yes. But what I was thinking about for me when I'm burned out, often it's because I haven't socialized enough. So I've just been working and not spent time yes. with friends and even though it, it sort of feels the opposite. Like I don't feel like I want to see people because I feel like I just want to zone out in my downtime yes. if I'm working really hard. But what I know if I look back on my own history is that if I make the effort and I go out and spend time with friends, that actually recharges me and makes me feel less burned out. And
1: see, this is a perfect example by why identifying the problem is so crucial. Because if you miss identify the problem, you might go to great lengths to solve burnout in a way that's not going to be at all helpful. Let's say I live down the street from you and I was like, oh, listen, if you're feeling burned out, I'll come over and do all your dog care for a week or whatever, Mm -hmm. just make something up. It wouldn't help because it might, you might be like, oh, that's nice. Or that makes my life a little easier, but it wouldn't get to that core issue of burnout for you because for you, that's about not getting that kind of social energy that you need so much. And sometimes the place that hurts isn't the place that's injured. And Mm. so you really have to think about what are the causes of it and, and this feels so obvious, like, oh, it's just very obvious to know. But as your example is a great illustration, it's not always that obvious. It's not There's not always, like, a direct line. This is why we always talk about know yourself better. Yes. What do you need? Somebody else might be like, oh, what I need is more time in solitude. I'm spending too much time with other people. I'm not taking that time that I need just to be alone. And for them, yes. that could be giving them burnout.
0: Absolutely. Gretchen, I'm curious. I don't think of you as someone who ever feels burnout. Do you?
1: You know, I don't think I often do feel burned out, but I think it's also because the nature of my—I mean, I'm really lucky because the nature of my work is so within my control that if I start feeling burned out, I can self-regulate pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. And you know that I will sometimes just, like, take an afternoon and reread Little Women or something like that. So. I think I'm pretty attuned to it and I get onto it pretty quickly, but I, I do think I'm in a really unusually fortunate situation and that I have so much control over my time and the way that I work. Also, one of the things that I do with burnout is I often have a hooky book. Mm, yes, you do. I have projects that I work on, and so I think sometimes if I'm feeling tired of something or like it's just feeling limp and shopworn in my hands... I'll turn to something else that gives me creative energy with no pressure and no expectations. Cause this is my hookie project. Right. And that refreshes me because I find that creative stuff recharges me. But sometimes my main project, you know, there's there's just like that's a lot of work. Yes. And and so that can get exhausting. Well, I wonder what other factors are that make people feel burned out. I mean, it would really be interesting to know, like, what are the top 20 causes?
0: Yes. I could see um, when we were all home so much, I thought having to prepare meals three times a day every day, (laughs) Yes, that to me was a cause of burnout. I think, and it was
1: just so disruptive that I think people got
0: burned out, just with
1: there was so much sameness that anything that you didn't like wasn't I mean, there were just so many reasons that people felt burned out. People with young kids that were doing so much supervision. I wonder if burnout often is tied to relationships or maybe load, feeling like there's too much to do and not enough time to do it. I would suspect, but I'd be very curious to hear from listeners. If you say to yourself, I want to identify the problem of my burnout— What is it? I mean, one thing that I think often made people feel burned out is the commute. And this is one reason that so many people are really greeting the idea of a hybrid work or like more flexible work. Yes. That was a big, big stressor in in your life, Elizabeth.
0: Oh, absolutely. I had jobs where I had to drive over an hour each way and in bad traffic where you're fighting your way. Yeah. And it absolutely burned me out. No question.
1: Right. Well, so listeners, we're really interested to hear from you. What do you think is the core cause of your burnout if you're feeling burned out? Did identifying the problem reveal anything to you that you hadn't seen before? I think this would be really, really interesting to hear because this is something that so many people talk about and we hear about it right now that so many people are feeling burned out. But what is actually causing that burnout? Knowing that people feel burned out doesn't actually tell us very much So I'm really interested to hear what people have to say. So let us know on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, drop us an email at podcast at GretchenRubin.com. Or as always, you can go to the show notes. You can go to happiercast.com slash 369 for everything related to this episode.
0: Coming up, instead of a happiness hack, we have a resource. But first, this break. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash Gretchen. That's linkedin.com slash Gretchen to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Gretchen, usually we have a happiness hack now, but instead we have a resource. Yeah,
1: this seems too significant to be a hack, but we're happier when we live up to our values. And one way to put our values into the world is to support the causes that we believe in. And on February twenty-fourth, Russia attacked Ukraine, and we've all watched with sorrow, with anger at what is happening, and you know, and with so much admiration for the the, the brave determination of the Ukrainian people. And we want to support, but sometimes when you want to give support, it can be a little intimidating to figure out, okay, what is the best place to give? I want my money to be well spent. I don't want it to be wasted. I want it to get to the right people. So what do I do to be most effective? So just, I decided that I would go do that research so that I could tell people, a handful of places like, okay, these are good places to give.
0: Good, because it does sadly happen that uh, at times like this, scams arise. And so you can give your money to someone who wants it for themselves. So it's good to know places that are safe to give.
1: Yes. And on that note, some of the sources that I was looking at warned that it is often better to give your money to an organization than to like a crowdfunding effort or a social media campaign, because those often can be fake and also be careful watch out for look alike names because sometimes mm. i think it's not even that they're trying to be scammy it's just that a lot of people have been drawn to names that have like care in the name and so you want to just like poke around a little bit and make sure that you are giving to the organization that you intend to give to whether because it's just sort of a look alike or whether because somebody's actually trying to scam you it's worth poking around a bit to make sure everything is fine Also, what I was reading is that it really is better for people if you send cash, not good. Somehow it can feel more real to give stuff. It feels kind of more hands-on, more tangible. But what these kind of best practices were saying is like you really want an organization that's on the ground to be able to decide what do people really need right now. This situation is changing very rapidly you could give something that just doesn't reach people. There's a lot more friction when you're sending stuff, and so money really is what most organizations find to be most useful.
0: Gretch, one organization is Save the Children.
1: Yes, this this is a very highly rated organization. It has a special emphasis on children and families. It has a great reputation. Another one is Care. That's a name that came up and really looks very reputable, a good place to give.
0: Another place to give is the International Committee of the Red Cross.
1: Now, there are other organizations that are great, but this is a great place if you want to get started and and you want to know a good place to go to. Here's a question for listeners, because I was looking around and what I would like to do in, in addition to those organizations that are just humanitarian support I would like to give to an organization that is trying to get information to the Russian people, to give them access to accurate information. I could not find an organization that did that. So if you know an organization that is doing that, please let me know because I would like to donate to that kind of organization.
0: Absolutely.
1: And here's one final thing. I mean, the sad fact is that before February 24th, many of the people who now desperately need help were leading safe, comfortable lives. And now they're in a desperate situation. But there were all these people who were already in desperate situations before this happened, and they still need help just as they did before. So we we have to remember how much need there is in in the world.
0: Yeah, and Gretchen, you'll link to um, these organizations we mentioned in the show notes.
1: Yes, I will. Our goal is to make it very easy, if you want to give, to know where to give. And now for a happiness interview. Today we are talking to Katherine Schultz. Katherine Schultz is on the staff of the New Yorker magazine, where she writes about many subjects, often about books and authors.
0: In 2016, she won the Pulitzer Prize for a story on seismic risk in the Pacific Northwest. Her previous book was Being Wrong Adventures in the Margin of Error. And now she has a new memoir that just came out Lost and Found. Here's a description. 18 months before Catherine Schultz's beloved father died, she met the woman she would marry. In Lost and Found, she weaves the stories of those relationships into a dazzling exploration of how all our lives are shaped by loss and discovery, from the maddening disappearance of everyday objects to the sweeping devastations of war, pandemic, and natural disaster, from finding new planets to falling in love.
1: Uh, coincidentally, every year my book group does a book swap where we, we draw names and- and then swap books. And one of my friends, completely unrelated to this, picked Lost and Found to give to another friend. Hello, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hello, thank you, wonderful to be here. Excellent. Now, Catherine, we both loved your memoir. And to give listeners a, a sense of the mood of the book in your language, would
2: you read a passage? I would be more than happy to. This comes from very close to the end of the book, but not the actual end, so we're not spoiling anything. Yeah. <laughs> That is the essential difficulty of our situation. Life goes on, but we do not. We stop. Perhaps the devout are right, and some part of us will endure beyond the grave. But either way, existence as we know it, falling in love, grieving, going to the grocery store, splashing in the ocean, driving at night with the music up and the windows down, in every detail good and difficult, living out our days here among the egrets and herons and black bears and fleas, all of this seizes absolutely upon our death. That is the very essence of what it means to be mortal, yet it is difficult to fully imagine, let alone accept. Our lives are literally everything to us, and they feel so brimming and momentous while we are living them that it is hard to grasp how fleeting they are compared to the whole of human history, to say nothing of the vast sweep of space and time. This radical discrepancy between the scale of our own lives and the scale of the rest of existence can leave us feeling two different ways. One of them, akin to the feeling of losing something, is that the universe is dauntingly large and we are terrifyingly insignificant. The other, akin to the feeling of finding, is that the universe is dauntingly large and yet here we are, unimaginably unlikely and therefore precious beyond measure." As with so many other contrasting feelings, most of us will experience both of these eventually. It is easy to feel small and powerless. Easy, too, to feel amazed and fortunate to be here.
1: Well, I love this passage. It's so beautiful. And it really, the whole book is set up with these contrasts, lost and found. And that is the title and the sections of the book. It's, it's lost, found and then
0: and. Yes. When I opened it and saw that, I was like, intriguing. The and was so intriguing.
1: Yeah. Did you come to that structure as you were thinking of the book or did you come to it later? How did you happen on that structure?
2: Yeah. You know, I am mindful that that final section of the book, the and section, is definitely the strangest and probably the least expected. But to be honest, it's, it's why the book exists at all. This book started in a certain sense uh, as an essay that I wrote uh, not long after my father died. That was about uh, losing him, but also losing things more generally, you know, keys and cell phones, elections, you name it. And at the time, a couple of people asked me if I was interested in expanding it into a book. And I I didn't want to um, as much as I think, you know, grief is a huge subject. There's always more to say about it. I love my dad. I'm always happy to say more about him, but I didn't really want to spend... You know, two, three, four, five years of my life. Uh, just thinking about grief, and then mm. at some point it mm. occurred to me that there was this kind of mirror image story I could tell that was about discovery, uh, and that had at the heart of it the greatest thing I personally have ever found, which is my partner. And and looked more broadly at the category of finding the way this other piece looked mm. broadly at the category of loss. But actually, even that didn't quite tempt me into writing the book. But as I was talking my way through that, my partner happened to use this incredibly everyday phrase, lost and found, uh, kind of just reflecting mm. back to me what I was saying. And, you know, the mind is a very strange thing. And and what I heard loud and clear in that moment was the and, which mm. I think, oh. you know, I think that's because I, I did have the experience of finding my partner and losing my father in quite quick succession. So I had been living with a lot of and, right? I'd been living with as, you know, being as happy as I'd ever been, but but grieving my father terribly, losing this fundamental piece of my family of origin right at the moment that I was making a family of my own. So it was much on my mind. And, and she said that phrase, and I heard the and, and I realized, boy, we all live with that kind of and all the time. And that's a really interesting mm. category of experience. And suddenly this like little baby book idea went from being a diptych to being a triptych and and kind of more importantly, went to being a book I actually did really want to write. Mm, interesting.
0: Well, and the emotions are obviously so different between, you know, falling in love and grieving. I'm so curious, which was harder to capture in words when you were writing the book? Mm, it's a great question. Or was it you the know, third section? Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's tricky to say they were all very interesting to write in various ways. I will say, I think the easiest was was found, uh, the love story, basically. It was mm-hmm. a real delight to get, I mean, we all love to tell our love stories, right? You know, you go out with some friends, you're just, you've just gotten together with someone, they say, well, how'd you meet? And it's such a pleasure to recount these kinds of tales. And for me, it was really wonderful to, to really just sit with the the story of how I met my partner and how we fall fell in love and how we got married and also just what our day to day life is like like I, I there's not a lot in the way of memoirs that are just about the substance of mm. of a happy life and mm. a happy marriage and I really enjoyed getting to write that you know I'd, I'd write all day long and I would take the pages up to her and read them to her as a bedtime story. And so that was that was the easiest part. Um, (laughs) I think probably the last section was the hardest to write just because it was conceptually the the trickiest in some ways. And I wanted to make sure it still felt to readers like a story and also like their life, you know, relevant to, to their experience of the world as well.
1: It is funny how hard it is to write about happiness. It is, it is as somebody who writes a lot about happiness. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's
2: it's it's
1: it's 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 trickier than a person might think to write uh, something that's not super sentimental or dripping with cliches or annoying. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say, I mean, you Hard are definitely the that. expert in this, uh, and and have done it so well and <laughs> in, uh, in such kind of wonderfully expansive ways. And I feel like I've just kind of dipped my toe in, but. You know, I think it kind of gets a bad rap, to tell you the truth. I mean, I think there's all this fear that happiness, you know, it's somehow just pale and invisible on the page and doesn't spring to life the way that trauma or dysfunction does. And to be honest, I didn't find that to be the case. And if anything, I'm a little perplexed by the widespreadness of that notion that that somehow happiness is boring and Mm -hmm. difficult to animate, in part because happiness is not a single static state, you know, as you well know, right? I mean, even even mm-hmm. the happiest yeah. and most fortunate of lives, and I I do believe I've lived an unbelievably fortunate life, mm-hmm. it's not like you get away from grief. It's not like you get away from right. fear or frankly just the everyday stuff of like I'm irritated, I'm bored, I stub my toe, you know, whatever it may be. Mm. That there's always yeah. a lot of of topography to happiness. So I actually found it really fun to kind of wander around in that landscape and write about it. But there's no question that it it has this reputation as somehow being uh, less mm. intrinsically interesting than trauma and and uh, and sorrow and grief. Well it's
1: interesting because I noticed on the cover of your book there's a tribute from Marilyn Robinson and I think Marilyn Robinson's novel Gilead is one of the most beautiful novels and the most mesmerizing and compelling novels basically about happiness and it's being in the mind of a of kind of a pure good happy person, but dealing with like all the stuff that you're talking about. So that's very appropriate that that Marilyn Robinson is there.
0: Catherine, you're writing about such intimate emotions and events obviously. Did you have any rules for yourself about how much you would reveal? Or were you just sort of like no holds barred.
2: I didn't have rules about how much I would reveal, um, partly because it's really not that kind of memoir. Right. You know, I remember when I was when I was taking this book around to publishers, one of them looked at me very seriously at the end of the meeting and and started asking these kind of probing questions about all of my relatives. And at some point I realized the gist of what he was trying to say is like, are we going to get sued? You know, is there anything in here? Like, do we need to oh. call in the whole legal <laughs> meeting? And, you yeah. know, it's, I, I'm not telling that kind of story. So there wasn't anything um, in that sense that I thought, oh, well, I I don't want to share this or make this public. Um, But but there was a kind of constraint on this book uh, in terms of how much I shared about my life that wasn't about privacy. Uh, it It was actually about relevance, you know, because this is a kind of odd memoir that is existing in service of this exploration of the broad idea of loss and the broad experience of discovery and then this kind of sense of emotional conjunction and complication. Everything got subjected to the test of, is this relevant to that? You know, I mean, one could write mm. about love endlessly and in every direction and, and likewise about grief. But I did really try to make sure that the stories from my own life were serving this, uh, this, this set of experiences that I wanted to explore.
1: And you're a journalist who's often like, reporting. What was it like to write about your own experience?
2: Uh, easy <laughs> to be to be very easy. blunt about it. Um, easy right. in the sense that um, I am a journalist. I am a reporter. I am not a very good yeah. natural reporter. I'm like one of these people who has to. Like steal myself before every single phone call. Like it's gonna be fine. I can do this. Uh, And which is Mm. funny because I'm married to like the world's greatest natural reporter, who thinks it's incredibly fun and the best part of the job. But I'm always like cowering in the corner before Ah. I have to go do it. Interesting. (laughs) Even though I love it and I I think reporting is wonderful and I like the kind of writing it allows me to do. But to be perfectly honest, at book length, it was very nice to to feel like the only real source I had to consult was like Mm. myself, my partner, my family. (laughs) (laughs) Yourself. it made things very yeah. easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And did your wife give you comments? Was she a critic for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, she's always my my first and and honestly my best reader. Um, even though I consider myself fortunate, I have wonderful editors, you know, at the magazine and and at the publishing house. But uh, she read everything, um, kind of in real time, basically, which is which is how we work pretty much mm. for all of our work, hers and mine, books, magazine pieces, and. Yes. She has a gift I do not. She has many gifts I do not, but one of them is the gift of brevity. <laughs> and I was really committed mm. to this being a short book. And, and when I declared that fact right when I sat down to start working on it, basically everyone in my life laughed at me. I am really not known to sticking to my word limit. Uh, and, and one of the ah. real gifts that she brought to this book was akin to what I was saying earlier, which is a real sense of what needed to be in it and what didn't need to be in it. And a real sense Mm -hmm. of how to select the stories that were actually going to simultaneously move the trajectory of my life forward, but also really serve these ideas about losing and finding. So it was immensely helpful. It also saved me a lot of time because at some point I wised up and I started showing her things really early so she could say, please stop writing that. Go write this other thing instead. Ah. So, yes, she was Ah. was, uh, wonderfully helpful to me all throughout it.
1: Oh, that's so great. Now, I know you took the quiz, the Four Tendencies quiz, and it did not come as a surprise to me, reading the book, that you were an upholder. Did that ring true for you when you read the description?
2: I think so. That you I readily mean, I meet sh- your
1: inner expectations and your outer expectations?
2: Yeah. I mean, I certainly identify as someone who has very strong inner motivation. I- I'm... Basically, always pleasing above all things to uh, make myself happy. <laughs> uh, not not in the facile sense, mm-hmm. but I'm I'm always trying to meet my own yeah. standards, um, and my own yeah. standards are almost always higher than those of anybody around me. So yes, I am for good or ill, and I I'm sure you'd be the first to say that all of these ways of being in the world have you know all of for all of us our strengths are our weaknesses, but. Um,
0: Yes, Yes, I'm relatively
2: indifferent to what the world thinks about what I'm doing, but I have very strong reactions to what I think about what I'm doing.
0: And finally, Catherine, we love to ask our guests for a try this at home. Do you have a tip, something to make our lives happier, healthier,
2: more productive, more creative? I do, but it's absolutely borrowed glory. Speaking of gifts my partner has given me, um... So it's Lent right now, which is irrelevant to me because I'm a secular, secular Jew. Uh, but I married a devout Lutheran who observes Lent. And this particular Lenten season, she decided to give up complaining. And I have to tell you, it's been revelatory Ooh. for us both. <laughs> I, I cannot ah. recommend it enough. I mean, I'm, I might jokingly suggest you try to get your partner to give up complaining, which is even better. <laughs> but yeah. but I, I, um, yeah. I really do... Um, <laughs> I have to say that it's really fascinating, um, kind of, the amount of awareness that is brought into our lives about when we do complain and how often and about what kinds of things. And it's been really wonderful for both of us, I think, to just say, actually, no, like, that's not how we want to engage with the world. And of course, there, you know, one can't suspend criticism or, or judgment all the time. It's important, I think, to be thoughtful and analytical about the world. And yet it's, there's a lot of complaining that actually isn't serving anything remotely useful in our lives. Right. So yes, my my mm. try this at home is uh, take, you know, your 40 days or however long and, and see if you can go without complaining. That
1: is That's a great fantastic. idea. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Well, thanks so much, Catherine. It's so fun to get to talk to you. It's Thank been an absolute you. pleasure.
2: I really appreciate it.
0: Coming up, I reach into the past for my gold star, but first this break. Okay, Gretsch. It's time for demerits and gold stars, and you're up this week with a happiness demerit. Yeah. So, Elizabeth, you and I both
1: do high intensity weight training. Our parents do high intensity weight training. My in-laws do high intensity weight training. Jamie does. I like everybody that I, we try. I try to get everybody to do high intensity weight training. And during the pandemic, I did it at home with weights and bands and whatever, and it worked great. But now I can go back and do it in person, and I really prefer to do it in person. I feel like it's better, and I like—I walk there, I get out of my—you know—it's—it's just—it's a whole thing, and I like it better doing it in person. And yet, because of the convenience of doing it at mm. home, even though I know I'd rather see my trainer face to face, I'd rather do it in person. Week after week after week, I keep opting to do it at home just because mm. it's—I just look at my schedule and I'm like, ooh, I could just slip it in. And so that little bit of extra convenience is making me make a choice that's less happy overall, which I think happens a lot in happiness. Yes. The convenient thing pushes out the the better thing.
0: Yeah, and Gretchen, I have to tell you I just went back to doing it in person cuz I also mm. was s- staying on Zoom cuz it was just more yeah. convenient. It's better in person. I mean, you have the machines yeah. and you can't fake it. Right. I found that I was really finding ways to cheat my workout. Mm. And it's much harder to do when the trainer's physically standing next to you. So I think you should go back. Okay, time. good. Well, now I've got given myself that demerit. I feel I feel ready to
1: energize tackle to do it, it yes. to tackle it. But Elizabeth, reach into the past. What is this gold star?
0: Well, Gretch, my gold star is to mom, and it's for Aww. something she did years, I guess, decades ago at this point, which is I was thinking about it because she was mentioned she's coming to New York. So I was remembering when I lived in New York and at one point I went and lived in Portland for a couple of months uh, one summer and mom decided to come and stay in my studio apartment in the village because mom loves New York and never has enough time there. And it worked out just great that she could stay in my apartment And the gold star is, Gretch, when I came home, Mom had, like, decorated my entire apartment. And you know me. I do nothing, you know? Yeah.
1: Yeah. You and I, that gene skipped us.
0: (laughs) Yes. And I came home. Mom had a, a big rug. She had beautiful New York photos framed on the wall. She had, I mean, I don't even remember it all. Yeah, and yeah. of course she cleaned as well, organized. But it was like <laughs> my apartment was transformed and it was like, some people wouldn't like that, admittedly. Yes. For me, it was a gift. Just, it was, it really improved my whole experience of that apartment for the rest of the time I lived there. And it was just so nice that mom did that. So I just want to give her a gold star for making her young 20-something daughter happy. That was a great apartment, but it was it small. Was. So yes. it was
1: it was a little bit challenging because it was so small. But I think this is a good example of how we really understand each other as a family. Because I think you're exactly right. For many people, they would not want that. And they would be very <laughs> angry, insulted, resentful. But but mom knew she's like, oh. I know what Elizabeth is like, and yes. she'll never do it. And I'll just do it as a surprise. And it was wonderful.
0: It was great.
1: <laughs> oh, it's so fun to like think of these things in the far past.
0: I know it's easy
1: to forget. The resources for this week, Um, we've been talking about the calendar of Catalysts. I love the calendar of Catalysts. And so I've been collecting all these unconventional, whimsical dates. So thank you if you wrote in for suggestions. And now if you would like a free printable version of the calendar of Catalysts, you can go to happiercast.com slash catalysts to download it. And I'll put a link in the show notes. Also, on the Happiness Project Collection, we recently launched a new home goods section with some suggestions of some home goods that might make you happier. So if you're interested in getting a deep dive into featured products and tools, if you sort of like to have a preview of new projects and you want to get exclusive offers a few times a month, you can go get product spotlight emails at happiercast.com slash product spotlight. And I will also put a link to that in the show notes. Elizabeth, what are we reading? What are you reading? I just finished
0: Lost and Found
1: by Catherine Schultz. How about you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm reading The Philosopher's Pupil by Iris Murdoch. And that is it for this episode of Happier. Remember to try this at home. Take the first step to ending burnout. Identify the problem. Let us know if you tried it and what you identified in your burnout.
0: Thank you to Katherine Schultz. You could read her memoir, Lost and Found. Thank you to our executive producer, Chuck Reed, and everyone at Cadence 13. Get in touch. Gretchen's on Twitter, at Gretchen Rubin, and I'm at Elizabeth Kraft. Our email address is podcast at And if you like this show, please do not delay. Maybe you've been <laughs> thinking about doing it. Maybe you've been meaning to do
1: it, but you just haven't quite got around to doing it yet please be sure to tell a friend (laughs) or rate, review, and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next week, I'm Elizabeth Kraft. And I'm Gretchen Rubin. Thanks for joining us. Onward and upward. Elizabeth, I remember that, I don't know if it was during that visit or at some other time, but mom framed the cover of the first YA novel that you wrote. I've always remembered that.
0: Yes. Uh, So, um, of course, now we would frame bridge that. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, indeed. (laughs) From the Onward Project.